0: The system isn't working for the most number of people. It's like not. For the average person, it's not working. However, for investors, the system's working quite fine as long as they keep priming the pump on asset purchases.
1: All right, everyone. Welcome back to an episode of On The Margin. Today, I'm joined by Darius Darrell. Darius, welcome.
0: What's up, Michael? How are you doing?
1: I'm doing very well, my friend. I'm doing
0: very well. How are you? It's a pleasure to be here, my friend. Yeah. Every day above grass is above this on this side of the grass. Rather, it was a good day.
1: <laughs> Indeed, <laughs> it is. Indeed, it is. A lot of perspective. Um, so usually I wait till the end of this, but uh, you, I know, just went out on your own. Started uh, forty-two macro. So give us the plug before we get into it here. Tell us a little bit about what you're doing right now.
0: Yeah, yeah. So I mean, at forty-two macro, I mean our mission is pretty simple. We, we want to democratize the institutional grade macro risk management processes that a lot of you know, the, the most followed. You know, buy-side firms and asset managers are using to democratize those processes for for all investors. Um, you know, I believe there's a lot of you know macro opinion out there, and, and quite frankly, I do believe that you know the world is really devoid of macro process. And so, what we do at 42 Macro is really crunch all the numbers and the data uh, for investors so, so that they can follow along and actually appropriately risk manage their capital across economic and market
1: cycles. Yeah, that's great, man. I'm super happy to support that. It's so hard to get good information out there. Like even we were just talking before we came on here, super basic stuff. uh, Even something like QE is just completely misunderstood uh, and nothing that fundamental uh, there should be questions around. So um, with that being said, I want to just get right into it. Uh, let's kind of start at this idea of reflation, right? So if you kind of go back to September, October, November of this year, uh, the reflation trade, the reopening trade was kind of all the rage. Uh, it's seeming like that's died down a little bit. Um, and obviously, there are fears about uh, the Delta variant kind of flaring up, uh, Jackson Hole is being recorded uh, virtually, not an in in-person meeting, maybe for the first time ever. Uh, so talk to us a little bit about where you kind of think we are in this reflation trade, reopening in the economy, growth, all that kind of stuff.
0: Yeah, so this is something we, we called out in real time and really prospectively going all the way back to, 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 to May um, in the early parts of our, our existence. You know, the inflation trade is over. Let me start that. Mm-hmm. Inflation trade is definitely over. And at it least really it's taking a temporary pause for those of you who are more longer term investors, because I do believe that there is a longer term opportunity there. However, you know, I, I, I tend to take offense with, you know, the investors that say, hey, the markets are devoid. Uh, from economic fundamentals, because the reality is the refraction trade pretty much ended right when it should have ended. Mm -hmm. Um, If you allow me to share my screen, I actually prepared a slide deck. Yeah, that'd be great. You guys are uh, are more than welcome to distribute. All right, so let me me start by saying we we think about the world through the lens of regime segmentation, and the two most important factors that that matter to asset markets in terms of them being principal components of of asset class dispersion, both in and across asset classes, is, is growth and inflation. And so we think about the world through this regime segmentation lens whereby you can have you wind up with four states um, when growth's accelerating and inflation's decelerating that's what we call goldilocks when growth and inflation are accelerating simultaneously that's what we call reflation when growth and inflation when growth's decelerating and inflation's accelerating that's what we call inflation and then lastly when both are slowing simultaneously we call that deflation so um, the short acronym for this is grid we call this our, our grid system <laughs> and looking at slide five here you know, the most important thing you should f- fundamentally focus on when you see this chart is just the colors right like we went from deep dark blue deflation in the spring in the winter and spring of 2020 to this very elongated stretch of dry land whereby growth and inflation were persistently and consistently accelerating uh not only in the u.s economy but really all across the world economy and now as you can see as we're getting into the latter part of the third quarter of this year we're about to go back into the water again um, in terms of uh, you know heading back into what we call deflation again when growth and inflation are, are trending lower simultaneously. So uh, as you might notice and everyone noticed this, you know the reflation trade pretty much ended in June. Um, it didn't pretty much ended in June. In fact, it actually did end in June. It became it no longer was the modal outcome from the perspective of our market regime now casting process. Mm-hmm. And so each of those regimes I just highlighted has a you know sort of very you know pretty consistent set of sector and style factor leadership of cross-asset leadership uh, from the perspective of asset markets. And as you can see, you know, really going all the way back to November of, of, of last year, reflation was the dominant market regime. It was the modal outcome from that bean counting perspective. Well, as you can see in early June, it really dissipated. It gave way to Goldilocks. And since then, we've been having this sort of debate between... Uh, goldilocks versus deflation but ultimately we think goldilocks will win out at least over the next couple of months
1: yeah so Darius, can walk me through maybe you can uh looking at this through your your sort of framework that you've laid out here uh it seems like one kind of narrative that you hear sometimes explicitly said sometimes sort of implied is that look the, it, like you said, the equity markets are not being rational right now. There's uh, all these kind of sky high valuations, these growthy tech stocks, they have to correct at some point, right? Um, on the one hand, I could see that being true, right? That you know, if you look at the NASDAQ, it just looks like tree can't grow to the sky forever. Like what goes up must come down, at least at some degree. Um, on the other hand, you know, to maybe look at this through your framework, it doesn't look like we're really moving back to a place where growth is, is the is the status quo is what we expect. So in that case, that that kind of dynamic of paying a premium for growth uh, should continue, right? So we should see an extended rally on some of these uh, tech stocks, uh, riskier sort of growth names. How do you kind of answer that or think about that question?
0: Yeah, that, that's exactly what you should see. So going back to that that table I highlighted, you know, where we're, we're heading into a sequence of Ds, when you look at what it historically has led from a style factor leadership perspective, the number one style factor you should be long of in deflation is large cap growth. Mm. Right? like it's, it's when growth is scarce investors assign higher premium and valuation terms to assets that can compound uh, sales and cash flows and so that's precisely what we observed over the past you know sort of month to really it's been two and a half three months going on starting in early june uh, you've seen persistent leadership um, from you know large cap growth low beta type sectors um, that leadership has really really gotten defensive in the recent weeks in terms of utilities and healthcare being really at the top but really since since the early part of june You've seen a tremendous. So actually, what I'm showing here in this chart, let me let me explain the chart first. On the right here, mm. we're looking at the month-on-month sharp ratios across 50 different equity sectors and stock factors. And so we track this on a daily basis to identify, you know, in real time, what grid regime is you know investor consensus either being rotate- rotating into fundamentally, or they're being rotated out of, you know, <laughs> based on the risk management systems that you typically see at, at multi-manager hedge funds. Um, the key takeaway is that it's been going in the direction of, of deflation again, growth and inflation slowing simultaneously uh, for two months now. and so we would expect um, that to continue um, to to a certain degree, although we would expect in the context of a Goldilocks regime to see a little bit more balance and a little bit more uh, participation from cyclicals that we've seen in recent months as they again as a function of the market regime transitioning back to Goldilocks.
1: yeah, absolutely. Um, so I guess, you know another question that I have as well is uh people kind of are all eyes on the Fed right now so we just talked about their upcoming meeting in Jackson Hole right which is going to be virtual uh sort of for the first time um there's a lot of talk kind of about the difference in between um I guess another narrative that I'd love to get your opinion on is we've kind of exhausted what we can do from a monetary uh policy standpoint right and we're starting to see fiscal kind of come in as a big in a big way right the It's hard to even keep track right of all the different iterations of the infrastructure bill but i think we had like 1.5 trillion dollar infrastructure bill that was passed what are your thoughts on kind of how i mean how much do you pay attention to kind of monetary versus fiscal spending uh where do you think we are kind of in that in that sort of cycle
0: well i'll tell you where we better be (laughs) (laughs) yeah where where we are where we better be is two very very different things so Mm. let me let me me start by the you know the the first part of that question which is on on slide 58 i believe Mm jump ahead. So you know, the Fed has a history of prematurely tightening. What we're showing here in this chart is the the, the, um, the Fed's balance sheet relative to uh, financial conditions. And so you know, if we don't see the continued handoff from monetary to fiscal policy, what well, you're more likely to observe an asset markets is this something that looks a little bit like 2010 or 2011. Remember we had the drawdown of 16% in 2010 when they ended QE1 prematurely. It was uh, 20% in S&P Um, when they ended QE2 uh, prematurely in June of of 2011. So, you know, there's a history of the Fed sort of pulling back on monetary accommodation before the economy really gets to a place where it's, you know, self-sustaining, you know, really um, kind of, you know, reflexive economic cycle to the upside. Um, You know, the reason I bring that up in terms of where they better be is because when you look at, you know, some of the more secular drivers of, 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 of monetary and fiscal policy dynamics, if you think about... Uh, what we look at is politics, you know, what we're showing here on the x right. axis, the Gini coefficient, which is a measure of income dispersion, higher is more unequal, the lower is more, uh, more equal. And then on the y-axis, we're showing the unemployment rate. And the reason we show those two variables together mm. is because it gives you a good proxy or quantification of, particularly relative to other economies, the amount of political risk that you have in any given in society. Um, this, is the, the, this is really the, 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 wow. the fodder for populism to the extent your, your dot is uh, you know, up and to the right on this chart. And so, as you can see, where our dot is currently in the United States, we've really separated from the pack, from the, re- the rest of you know developed markets, the rest of the Western world, from the perspective of this political risk. And the reason that's important is because a lot of what's driven that, if you think about the breakdown mm-hmm. in the relationship between labor and capital in the United States society, that's what's really been, that's what's dri- driven the location of our dot on that previous chart. What I'm showing in this chart here, is corporate profits as a percent of gdp relative to um uh employee compensation as a percent of national income and as you can see you know that was a long and healthy stable relationship it was cyclical as it always has been you know throughout the dawn since the dawn of time right however long healthy stable relationship well starting in you know really the early part of the, the 21st century you had china joined the wto in november 2001 had the you know sort of the onset of you know the internet and and, 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 and and internet commerce and all that the jazz that came with it and then you also had the proliferation of, of low interest rates and and the and because of that the proliferation of the private equity industry and all these things they've all basically laid siege to the amount of compensation and the share of national income that was being uh, garnered by workers and so to me this is why we kind of are having these discussions about this sea change in fiscal policy or this 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 they better have the sea change in fiscal policy because if you don't get it, what we're going to see is a lot more of what we saw last summer and a lot of what we saw in the early part of January in terms of both sides of the aisle being pissed off and fed up enough, you know, as a function of being left behind by economic, by by this, 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 this this style of economic development.
1: Yeah, man, those are some really great charts. That Jenny coefficient chart. uh, Yeah. I'm going to have to take a deeper look at that. I love the way you've laid this out because to me, a lot of this comes back almost everything comes back to a lot of these types of discussions tend to be centered on are we going towards inflationary environment or a deflationary environment and for me, I think the more important question to understand there is it all comes back to income inequality right wealth inequality uh, because as long as you have that for sustained periods of time, you can just look throughout history that never lasts that literally never lasts. something has to change right the most um, you know the least extreme way that that could change is maybe there's a shift in labor to capital, which is what I want to ask next. Uh, but the most extreme is like the you know French Revolution heads on spikes, which I'm not saying that we're there yet, but uh, you know always good to be cognizant of. Um, so, yeah. so could you go back to that the labor versus capital chart that you had there before? Yeah,
0: absolutely. Sorry, my apologies.
1: No, no, no. Um, so here's my question for you here. So. If, you've, if you look at kind of how empires structure themselves, um, one component of successful empires is they have access to really cheap labor. Um, in the mm-hmm. past, that has been basically forced labor. Uh, you can make the argument that for the United States, what we've essentially done over the couple, last like 30 years uh, under the banner of uh, globalization, right, or outsourcing, is we've taken in this huge, super low-cost labor pool in the form of China, right? Mm-hmm. So on the one hand, when I think about where we're headed um, in terms of being in a secularly inflationary or deflationary environment, we're printing all this money, right? So how could we not be headed towards inflation? But on the other hand, we still have these gigantic uh, low-cost labor pools. Even if China were to, you know, their their cost of labor were to go up, there are other places in the world that I think we would just relocate to. So how does this dynamic of um, share of income, right, for the United States change if there are still these low cost labor pools that exist, be it China, or maybe if we move to like Vietnam or Mexico or other places, like what's your thought on, on that dynamic?
0: Yeah, no, that's a phenomenal uh, loaded question. I know. Sorry. It took me uh, about my, two I, minutes
1: to get that one out. So, uh, No, yeah. no, no, please. I,
0: I appreciate it. It's a, it's a very thoughtful question. And, and I think there's a couple of tenants that I really want to highlight. So, uh, let's start with this sort of concept of, of, of we have, you know, I think you sort of alluded to this and, I, and I'll spell it out a little bit more. I think what you're effectively saying is that a lot of the dynamics that have caused disinflation in the past few decades have not changed. Right. Right. Like yes. there's nothing new about that, and I, I would agree with that. You know, so if you look at what I'm showing here in this chart here on slide 43, uh, the red line is is employees, uh, the, the compensation of employees relative to the consumption of fixed capital, mm-hmm. and as you can see, that's just been a a, a one way ticket. You know, obviously it has these sort of secular bottoms for or cyclical bottoms, but it's been a one-way ticket lower for, for several decades now. Yep. And then um, the blue line in this chart shows the market cap of the S&P 100 index, so the, the 100 largest companies in the S&P, divided by the market cap of the S&P 500 index. And what you can see is that chart is up and to the right. And so what it what this chart effectively describes is the fact that the U.S. economy, particularly the U.S. labor market, is increasingly dominated by monopsonies And it's increasingly dominated by a broad broad-based preference for, for capital relative to labor. And so that's important to think about in the context of, you know, all these sort of secular drivers of inflation or disinflation, rather, are pretty much intact still. Yep. You look at the forced participation rates on its lows still, mon- the velocity of money, it's on its lows. And then, um, you know, still structurally, ele- still, you know, secularly elevated is, you know, the amounts of goods and services that we import from abroad. And so, to, you know, to move this to the China discussion, it's like, yeah, we can definitely start to, you know, shift our you can shift our our, our, our our production of goods, you know, to other economies at the margins, obviously you can't do it overnight, you're going to cause supply chain imbalances like the ones we're currently observing. Uh, but certainly, you know, there's this gigantic pool of excess labor out there waiting and ready and willing to finance cheap consumption of goods in the United States of America. That That's not going away unless there's, we start to levy incremental tariffs or change um, the nature of which we operate. Um, you know, in the global economy, which I, I highly doubt we're going to do. So to answer your question on, are we headed for inflation or are we headed for, for, for disinflation? You know, I think you, you kind of have to think about where where we're coming from and where we've been, right? So this is what we're showing here is just the the time series of US uh, headline CPI, the chart on the left is a 30 year chart, the chart on the right is a, a five year chart. And what you can see is that, you know, yes, our models have inflation peaking, rolling, and decelerating over the course of our next 12 month time horizon. However, you know, when those models start to bottom in the middle of next year, they're going to be bottoming at levels that are much higher than the bottoms we've recently observed in the past few sort of, you know, rate of change cycles that we've seen in this time statistic or in this in this time series. You know, so, so what that like what that means that the summarizing that, it means that the secu- the stationary mean of inflation has transposed itself higher. Mm. You know, it used to oscillate around one and a half percent for headline CPI, around one percent for core PCE those numbers are going higher probably by 50 to 150 basis points. And that to me is a dynamic that the market doesn't have to price in now. And, and really, I think the market, what the market really is pricing in is the peaking and rolling of inflation. But at some point in the next 12 to 18 months, we're going to be fully back on with this sort of transition to, you know, reflation, commodities, you know, sell bonds, interest rates are going higher. A lot of the stuff that we saw from November through, through early May through early June, um, likely start to come back on. But again, it's just, you, you got to manage the rate of change cycles, which is why we use that grid process.
1: Yeah. Yeah. That actually kind of led perfectly into the next question that I have, which is, uh, you know, something else that was started to become popular uh, around uh, October, November. It's hard to remember time uh, this year. What even is that? Uh, is this phrase commodity super cycle, right? Everyone's like, we're going into the next uh, commodity super cycle here. This started around when, you know, lumber kind of began its parabolic rise, right? Um, and what you have started to see is some of those commodities that grabbed a lot of news headlines people are paying a lot of attention to. Uh, I saw this chart uh, get posted on Twitter today. We're recording this on the 23rd. Uh, Lumber has essentially made a uh, round trip, right? So it started to, uh, you know, it's, it's kind of parabolic rise in around September, I think, of last year. Uh, and now it's right around where it was or even, even lower. Um, And there are some other commodities like that as well, like steels, they're the most recent one to kind of go up, but it looks like it's coming back down as well, iron ore. Uh, So what are your thoughts in general about the price of commodities, right? Does it kind of depend on whether or not we're in this uh, reflationary environment? Do you think prices are going to continue to rise? What are your thoughts on the whole commodity super cycle thesis, you know, uh, however many months we are out?
0: Yeah, I think, I think it's a fair thesis, but I mean, nothing goes up in a straight line. As right. you can see from this, this, the red line here showing the, uh, the CRB index, which is the broad, ma- broad basket of commodities, and the blue line is the U.S. dollar index. It literally did go up in a straight line. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, yeah it's, it's, a, a, it's a good point. Uh, up to the highs of, of, of earlier this, you know, the second quarter of this year. And so there's clearly naturally going to be a pause. And really what's driving that pause, and again, from our perspective, our, our framework is the fact that the rate of change of growth and the rate of change of inflation are now slowing Simultaneously, as opposed to accelerating simultaneously. Um, but in terms of getting a super cycle in anything, you got to start any sort of super cycle discussion in our industry with where what is your secular outlook for the US dollar? The US dollar mm. is the residual, the price of the US dollar, in our, in our opinion, is the residual of the, the, the imbalance or the, the lack thereof between supply and demand of dollar based credit, both inter- domestically and abroad. That's a, that's a mouthful. So let me start with the US dollar is the residual of the supply and demand imbalance or lack thereof between the uh, of, of, of the supply and demand of dollar denominated credit, both domestically and abroad. And so if you have to, you know, and the reason I say you have to start any discussion of a super cycle with what is your long term view of the dollar, because if your long term view of the dollar is bullish, then you're talking about disinflation, you're sending disinflationary signals to the bond market, you're sending disinflationary signals to risk takers in commodity markets and obviously in equity markets. And if you have a secularly negative view on the dollar, if the dollar is trending lower, it's naturally going to price, reprice financial assets and commodity assets higher as most of them are denominated and traded in trade dollars, commodities you know, upwards of 88%, financial assets globally, you're talking about 50, 60% or um, denominated in dollars. So you really do need to have a view on the dollar we do have a view on the dollar
1: Mm.
0: bullish on it in the near term having been long the dollar since early june um however in over the long term we're quite bearish um you know i I think you know a lot of investors you know are on both sides of that camp but i think that there's a much more work on the secular bear case for the dollar Mm. than there is on the secular bull case for the dollar and i tend not to want to be consensus you know i actually i really don't care what consensus is doing at any given moment i care how their consensus position because positioning actually matters but in terms of the longer outcome, the longer term view, you know, you got to start with balance of payments risk. You know, what's the current account, you go, let's go back to the currency fundamentals. What is the current account balance? Where's it going to be in three to five years? What's the fiscal balance? Where's it going to be in three to five years? And, and as you can see, the US dollar, the US, <laughs> we are the, the dirtiest, dirty shirt in the laundry hamper with respect to currency risk. And the reason this has not mattered. In, the, in, in 2021 is because you've seen an exceptionalism with respect to US growth and US inflation statistics that's pulling forward the likelihood of Fed tapering and, and tightening a monetary policy at the margins into the end of 2021. You don't necessarily have similar dynamics occurring in the UK, in the Eurozone, in terms of the ECB, you don't have it happening in Japan, you certainly don't have that happening in China. And so the dollar from a, from a relative, you know, real interest rate and, and really shadow policy rate uh, perspective has really benefited the year to date. And so the, the real question is, what does the world look like post-COVID or or mm. more? I don't actually believe in the phrase post-COVID because I do believe the pandemic is has become an endemic. And we just have to acknowledge that and start to shift the way we do things in society. Yeah. But I'll leave that for a second discussion. Let me just sort of wrap up on the dollar. The reason we're so bearish on the dollar longer term, one, the currency fundamentals support that. Two, foreign central banks, and I'm showing here a chart of international reserve assets as a as relative to Uh, U.S. public debt outstanding. And as as you can clearly see, they either don't want dollars, there's not enough dollar recycling in terms of buying, you know, the the U.S. Treasury securities, or we're issuing treasury securities so fast that they can't keep up. And so what this means is that you have to have a central bank, the Federal Reserve, i.e., has to actually absorb all that incremental treasury supply from the sea change in fiscal policy that we, you know, we previously discussed. And the reason that's, you know, negative for the dollar long-term is because, again, you're going to have to have a central bank stay much more easy at every interval than they otherwise would be to capitalize the US government. If they don't, and here's this is why, remember I asked the question like, I'll tell you what they better do. If they don't, the problem is, is you're going to have a crowding out effect that starts with the federal government issuing bonds, the treasury, the treasury market is at the top of the global capital structure, it's going to get its money. And so what that means is that the Fed isn't buying enough of that debt investors are going to have to sell other assets to raise cash to capitalize the, the, the U.S. government. And so that's a problem long term. In my opinion, I think part of the reason the inflation trade ended is that you've actually, the Fed in their June dot plot revision, the Hawkins revision to the dot plot, they effectively signaled that they weren't going to be all in in terms of, you know, really aiding and betting that, that that, that you know, fiscal largesse that we previously discussed. So, the, you know, kind of the, the key takeaway for all this is that, you know the dollar, which obviously was in a straight line down from you know May through to January of this year, has really found a formidable bottom in this you know in this price range. The red line on this chart has really found a formidable bottom in this price range as a function of the market realizing that okay, this Fed is a little bit more like the Fed of old than it was that we thought it was in terms of the Fed, the new Fed, the asymmetric inflation or average inflation targeting Fed, the maximum inclusive employment mandate Fed is not that different from the Fed prior to that and so the realization is that the dollar needed to take a breather in terms of its decline but ultimately once the rest of the world gets into this pandemic is an endemic state or we actually emerge from the pandemic you're going to see a pretty meaningful divergence between uh the monetary policy of 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 the u.s government relative to, to foreign foreigners
1: yeah um i've got a couple questions for you there uh so one i'm going to try to channel my inner jeff snyder here which is always dangerous uh to try to interpret what jeff what jeff says but um so, you know, you kind of started this out by saying that if you think about the future of the dollar, that essentially is a supply and demand dynamic uh, in between the amount of outstanding uh, you know credit that exists, right, which is denominated in dollars and actual supply of dollars. So if I were to try to channel Jeff's perspective here, I would say something to the effect of, well, actually, the largest uh, market for dollars is the euro dollar market, uh, which is really tough uh because yeah, it's not fully um, understood how large that market is, but uh, maybe it's an order of magnitude, call it larger than the market for dollars issued by the Federal Reserve, right? So you've got all these overseas banks, and they're issuing uh, credit that's denominated in dollars. Um, so. You know what would you say to this idea that maybe it doesn't matter quite so much that um central foreign central banks are decreasing their holdings of reserves in dollars right because really the more important driver is this much larger much less transparent market that demands um certain amount of dollar-based collateral right so essentially you've got this huge non-transparent market in the form of euro dollars and that's creating this constant bid uh, for especially treasuries which is just going to continue to prop that entire system up um, so what would you say to that uh, kind of argument
0: yeah I mean I don't I don't know that the argument is it's counter to what I was, I was saying I guess Jeff's saying that there's a structural it's, there's a structural mismatch in terms of supply and demand for dollar that is bullish for the dollar I right that's,
1: right that's, that's yeah exactly yeah
0: might my, 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 so yes I agree with that prior to everything I said about the the sea change in monetary and fiscal mm-hmm. policy here in the u.s the reality is, is that, you know, if you study sort of longer term uh, cycles through the lens of something like Neil House for turning my former colleague at Haji, mm-hmm. um, or Peter Turchin, um, I believe, at the University of Connecticut, he wrote a book called uh, *Ages of Discord, that's really good on longer term cycle work. If you sort of think about the political cycle in the United States of America, it dictates that we are going to have fiscal largesse. Mm. And what that means is it's no longer. You know, unipartisan. It's no longer ALC and her buddies on the far left. You know, it's it's everybody wants I free money. I
1: agree. Yeah, I agree. And it's it's
0: it's bipartisan. And so you know, the parties that don't realize how bipartisan fiscal largesse is increment, inc, incrementally becoming in recent years, or it has incrementally became in recent years. Obviously, the pandemic exacerbated a lot of that. You know, that 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 change is meaningful because it means that you know, at every opportunity. You know, midterm elections, you know, just like we saw with Georgia in the Senate race, you know, as weird as that was to a lot of investors for Georgia to flip double blue, it actually is not in the context of, you know, the, 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 you know, the, the, um, the, the, the Gini coefficient slide that I highlighted, right? Right. Like, this is why Georgia's flipping double blue. People want relief. They've been squeezed by inflation that has been underreported for for two three decades now they've been squeezed on the income side on the nominal income side by globalization by china, by you know by china by private equity by you know by a lot of factors have really you know kind of made life as a middle class, middle income to lower income person in this in this country quite miserable for the last couple of decades and so I think that the the political response in terms of just turning that dial you know we're now debating one to 1.5 trillion dollar budget deficits in peacetime like we're no longer debating like oh my god trillion dollars we got to get back to 500 billion like we were in the post-crisis era like with paul ryan and and rand paul and things of that nature now the fiscal hawks at dc are like all right let's just get it to a trillion and to me that's a meaningful shift in terms of the the supply of dollar-based credit um that's going to hit the system over the next decade
1: you know, one of my favorite documentaries of all time, actually, is uh, Smartest Guys in the Room. It's a documentary about Enron, the Enron scandal. Um, and it was obviously made back in the early 2000s. And, you know, the association that most people have in their mind is this colossal fraud, Enron, like massive amounts of, uh, you know, shareholder wealth or capital being destroyed. Enron back then was like $90 billion, something like that, in market cap. And you kind of look at that now and you're like oh doesn't seem like that much 90 billion like uh, you know it's almost like a rounding error and i think it's just such a good reminder of just how drastically the the relative amounts of dollars that we're talking about has changed over the course yeah, of no, not that long of a period of time um it's pretty and this crazy is why you know? i was actually
0: showing uh, slide 56 uh, in the previous question you know this is showing uh the blue line it shows the g4 central bank balance sheet relative to bloomberg uh, world equity market Capitalization. because i have capitalization, sorry.
1: The whole world has
0: figured out that you need this QE game to keep going, mm-hmm. you know, for the system to work. And I would argue, as Jeff argues eloquently, the system isn't working for the most number of people. It's not. Like for the average person, it's not working. However, for investors, the system's working quite fine as long as they keep priming the pump on asset purchases. When they pull back on asset purchases, the, we always run into problems with the asset markets because there's too much existing, the, the, the stock of existing credit outstanding is way too high. Mm-hmm. You know, we're all amortizing, amortizing corporate debt, personal debt, government debt, all that money, all those cash flows is going to, you know, amortize that debt. So you need QE to to to, to truncate that amortization process and actually put cash into the real economy or cash into asset markets for them to continue uh, appreciating. And so that that's why we're all so hooked on this QE. That's why the patient can't survive without the drugs.
1: Yeah. There was... um again i'm going to get in trouble trying to summarize other people's points but uh this guy mike howell came on uh my colleague tyler neville's uh podcast he basically made the point that um capital markets especially u.s capital markets have shifted from a capital allocation machine to a refinancing machine and if you look at flows um and and what banks are where banks are essentially getting their fees these days it's actually rolling over the tremendous amount of debt that exists and even though you know the fees that they generate are, are pretty low, uh, you know on a relative basis, just the, the sheer amount that needs to be rolled over and refinanced is tremendous. Um, yeah, you know, you're, you're talking in orders of magnitude where we were
0: prior to the GFC. Yeah, and um, obviously even prior to COVID. Um, what I'm showing here in this in this chart here, um, this is you know there's four there's four big forces that we care about when we think about talk about long-term investment cycles. Right. Um, there's demographics. There's leverage. There's balance of payments and there's politics. So we talked about balance of payments and politics, and to some degree we talked about demographics with respect to, um, you know, some of the drivers of U.S. disinflation. You know, the fourth of those those topics or those those, um, those pillars rather, um, is leverage. And so how we study leverage or the leverage cycle is looking at you know the, the private non- the change in the private non-financial sector credit to GDP ratio, relative to the change in the private non-financial sector debt service ratio. And as you can see from this chart here on slide fifty-seven, every economy just like they did in previous cycles. Deal with COVID the same way that we've done with all the most recent cycles. which is extend more credit. Just extend more credit. We'll, give, we'll do more QE. We'll f- put cash in your hands and we'll force you to allocate that cash to uh, other to, to companies, businesses, and governments that need the credit. That's you know it's like kick the can down the road, extend and pretend. It's only a pandemic. It's only a financial crisis. It's only a tech bubble. It's you know it's always only something, right? But, the, the, we're, we're, you know, to Jeff's point, and he's done a tremendous amount of, of, of real, you know, seminal educational work on, on this topic, it's that we created a, a Frankenstein of a system that needs incremental leverage and incremental cash flows to support that leverage to function. You know, if you, if you, don't, if you take the patient off the drugs, the, the patient has a big problem. We have Q418, we have Q1 of 2020, you know, we have 07, 07 09, you know, you have 2011, you have all these sort of moments in time Obviously, we talked about the 2010 and 2011 events, you know, where, you know, if you just take the patient off of drugs, even if only temporarily, we have big problems in the system. Yeah.
1: Howdy, guys. Excited to talk to you a little bit about this week's sponsor, Matrixport. If you're like me, you're trying to figure out how can I make my crypto go as far as it possibly can? Well, Port makes it really easy to do the simple stuff like just buying and trading and you're holding your crypto on a secure platform that you don't have to worry about. But they also help you take that next step to doing things like getting loans against your crypto or earning yield on it. Let's talk about the yield part because for me, that earn feature is the most interesting thing that they do. Number one, first step, you can start earning up to 30% APY on your USDC deposits. That's about 29.99% more than if you just kept those funds in a bank account. Talk about a no brainer. Number two, their team walked me through this. They have made accessing DeFi easy. And guys, I am telling you, I am the biggest Luddite on the face of the earth. If I can understand this stuff, then I promise, so can you. So don't wait. At least go check them out. Click the link at the bottom of this episode. Thank me later. So a lot of folks that I've spoken to, just because people look at the world through their own lens, so they have a lot of different language to describe that exact problem. That you just outlined right so uh this coming this will have been released by the time this episode airs but alfonso Picatiello came on our show last week and the language that he used to describe that exact problem is there's a difference between structural growth and cyclical growth which is driven by credit right so there's certain growth expectations that are baked into the economy the easiest way that i have of understanding that is the largest pool of institutional capital that exists is pension funds, they have a certain target that they need to meet, which is like around 7%, right? So at a certain point, it's politically or socially unacceptable to not be growing at a certain rate, right? And I think if we learned one thing, if I learned one thing from COVID, it's that A, we're not operating in free markets, but B, asset prices are at least to some degree a political decision, right? And if you wanna question that, ask what you think would happen if the Fed stopped their 120 billion in monthly asset purchases, right? There is somewhere a political decision being made that asset prices should be higher than what they are right now, and of course, right? It's it it, it is. It's just a simple thought experiment. He's um, so, not.
0: It's, sorry, I, I'll, I'll interject. It's actually not a simple thought experiment it is the truth <laughs> and so what we're showing here in this chart here is the um the the, the red line is the s p 500 the blue line is the s p 500's earnings yield uh-huh. deflated by headline cpi so the real earnings yield of the s p 100 it's as you can see very deeply negative right now mm-hmm. um the, the five of five of the last six times this thing has gone deeply negative i.e. inflation got out of control to the point where we had negative uh earnings yields we were on the precipice of a giant collapse in the, in the stock market Five of the last six times. I mean, this is data going all the way back to 1970. And so we're in that moment now. And so it is a political choice because these guys have to keep their foot on the gas unless – you know, if they take their foot off the gas, then they're exposing asset markets in the economy to the actual cycle. And this is the cycle.
1: Right. Yeah. My question is – so I've asked this question a lot of different ways to a lot of different people. So I'm asking it to you too. What is – how do we reset – here, right? Because you're absolutely right that we have been kicking the can down the road for a long period of time. So generally, when I ask this question, people are like, well, we're going to continue to kick the can. Okay. Do you philosophically believe that that can happen forever, right? Or or are there just breaking points, right? Where like to use it, to use a not even totally unrealistic example, the price of homes. in. The, so my parents just moved to Bozeman, Montana. Um, mm-hmm. Congratulations, mom and dad. Uh, the how the average price of residential real estate in Bozeman is up something like. It's just under a hundred percent year over year, right? Come on, a hundred doubled. Yeah, it's insane. What's going on over there? And and I get Bozeman's like it's a new, it's a hot area, whatever. I, what, what is whatever,
0: dude. The, whatever, man. Price. Whatever.
1: Like the average median price of the house in, in the U.S. was up something like eighteen percent last year, and it's supposed yeah. to be like twelve percent this year. So yeah. what happens when we wake up and houses cost? You know the median price of a home in the United States costs one point eight million dollars, two million dollars.
0: I mean, we're already seeing that. And so, so uh, I'll, I'll go back to the, the both examples in a second. We're already seeing this. So this chart here on fifty three shows the relationship between um, uh, home price appreciation through the lens of the case the time series and owner's are equivalent rent. Well, right now we have home price appreciation up sixteen point six percent on a year over year basis nationwide. You know, so this is concluding whatever the opposite of Bozeman is. It's probably like I don't know Bridgeport, Connecticut. It's probably like down year over year, but like so up sixteen percent year over year. And so the reason I, I highlight this analysis is because it it implies you know historically speaking, when you've seen the spread between home prices and owner's equivalent rent peak, when that spread reaches a cyclical peak, you typically have you know owner's equivalent rent and shelter CPI catch up on a on a twelve to twenty four month lag. And it makes a lot of fundamental sense, right? You price people out of the home ownership market, or people sell their homes and actually go into the rental market to capture the, you know, the upside and the, and the price appreciation. Either way, what we're talking about is is persistent housing type inflation over housing, accelerating housing inflation over the intermediate term, and that's exactly what our models are calling for um, with respect to shelter CPI. So, um, to, you know, going back to the original question, like, how do you kind of hit reset? I mean the answer is like there's only two ways to do it. And the LEO sort of introduced this framework yeah. this kind of called the, the beautiful deleveraging versus the ugly deleveraging. I don't believe any government is has the political will to pursue the ugly deleveraging. Mm-hmm. Right? You are not going to be in office particularly in a you know a society where we're electing presidents every 4 years the, the the election cycle's basically every 2 years. Um you know the the presidential election cycle's every 2 years, the midterm election cycle's every 1 year. And so you're never going to have a, a, a core constituent of policymakers and a core constituent of voters who believe in causing that much economic pain, or, or more importantly, I should say, they're incentivized to cause that much economic pain. Because you know, the, the only thing worse than like having a, a long-term malaise if you're a middle-class American, is actually having a protracted, a shorter term, but really sharp, deep you know, malaise. Imagine if we went to COVID and we didn't hand out checks. You know, we, we basically told people to go sit at home and not make money and didn't give people money. Imagine what that would have actually felt like for a lot of families in America. In, in America. So that's what we're arguing for when we talk about a, a nasty, ugly deleveraging. And I just don't think there's a political will to, to, to pursue that policy.
1: Yeah. So maybe to like sum up, uh, if I could, like everything that we've talked about, I totally agree with you. All these kind of roads, especially in macro land, kind of lead back to the future of the US dollar. But if, if you just kind of look at... Um, you know, the last 50, uh, 70 years, however far you want to go back, we've essentially been putting pressure on the dollar, uh, right, and kind of uh, relying on that, um, and its status as the reserve currency, and trade is denominated in dollars. So there's always going to be this kind of resting bid or supply, or, sorry, demand rather uh, for it. But now we're essentially putting pressure on that and really testing the limits of how far that can go. Is that like a kind of an accurate summary of what we're talking about now? Because I'd love to get yeah. into how can investors prepare themselves, right, for the environment that we're talking about like if it's if it's imagine i'm in a, in a seat where i'm trying to make investment decisions like how do i prepare for this environment that we're talking about here
0: yeah so that, that's a outstanding question i think the number one thing you have to do to prepare is have an understanding of where you are in the in the broader cycle so this goes back to not only understanding okay where are we in the context of a global currency cycle you know where are we in that supply demand and balance for dollar-based mm-hmm. credit we happen to think we're on the precipice of a real relative, you know, imbalance of dollar supply, right, um, over the next five to seven years, um, at least do we get to the, you know, the other side of this current turning that we're in. And so that likely means we're going to have a down dollar over the long term over the next, you know, three, five, six, seven years, um, from where it is currently, that likely means we're going to have higher asset prices, or, or not necessarily higher asset prices, certainly you'll have higher commodity prices, but it's also likely that we'll have higher asset prices to the extent that the Fed is you know, aiding and abetting that, that transition. Right. If the Fed is not aiding and abetting that transition and we have a lot of economic start-stop associated with that process, then you're going to have, um, you could potentially have some several, you know, some meaningful downshifts um, in, in, in the prices of, of equities and credit, you know, along the way, as, you know, the kind of the market, I, I like to think of asset markets as, as, as being living, breathing organisms. When the Treasury Department needs its money, if it's not going to get it from the Fed, it's going to cause a sell-off in other asset classes to capitalize itself. Right. For the Fed to come back into the game, so the, the market is smart in that regard in terms of you know creating this almost Pavlovian response uh, out of policymakers. And then lastly, along the way, I mean, you know, if you're a long-term asset allocator, that's that's all fine and dandy. But you know, a long-term asset allocator buying every commodity chart at the beginning of June. Would have got his face ripped off and, and, and quite frankly removed from the seat that they're sitting in. Mm-hmm. And so this is why I go back to the cyclical component of what we do. It's about understanding the rate of change cycles of growth and inflation and realizing, hey, when you're at a cyclical peak of something like growth or something like inflation, you know, this is inflation here, this is growth, we're you know, we're coming off cyclical peaks. And so that augurs for a, a much more defensive sort of um you know, much more defensive asset allocation over the intermediate term. That doesn't mean you need to take your long-term portfolio from you know 100 commodities to 100 percent bonds. Obviously you should never be in either of those right. uh, setups. I'm just using that as an example. It just means you need to start making decisions at the margins to book gains and things that aren't going to work in the, over the next three, six, nine months and really have capital to rotate into things that will work. and then at the end of that process you know by the middle of next year, you're going to be buying a lot of the commodities and things of that nature that, you know, you make money on in the first half of this year, because the dollar can really start to break out of its consolidation in a meaningful way to the downside.
1: I'm going to ask you a bit of a tricky question here, but because I, I tend to subscribe to your explanation here, right? Like it's it's almost like don't, don't think about it too hard, right? When there's this much uh, currency debasement that's going on, hard assets, honestly, like real estate, like commodities, gold should tend to do really well. What is the devil's advocate view there why could that understanding of the world be wrong or, or incorrect or kind of what's the counter argument to everything that we just laid out
0: well i think the counter argument is that 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 price begets more supply mm. and so you know the, i think that's something that crude oil marketing is struggling with right now to be frank um is that you know when the prices get high it incentivizes more people to drill for right and natural resources mm. and so you know you typically that's why you don't have these sort of long-term, like eight, 10, 12-year moves in commodity markets, they tend to be like three to five at most, mm. right? You get massive bubbles over a three to five-year period, and then that's when all the incremental supply starts to come online and really starts to depress prices. So that's sort of the devil's advocate view. But again, I don't believe that the devil's advocate view is powerful enough to, over, to kind, sort of uh, override you know, these sort of longer-term currency you know, and, and the basement dynamics associated with this sort of lurching left of monetary and fiscal policy. Now again, I mentioned earlier that monetary policy. Part of the reason the inflation trade ended, um, you know, when it did in the middle of this year, is twofold. One, the growth in inflate, the rate of change cycles for growth and inflation were, you know, were peaking and rolling, and we're obviously observing that in the data already. Uh, but number two, it was the Federal Reserve that sent a signal to the investors via its dot plot and really through a lot of commentary that we've seen s- since then. Kaplan, Bullard, Bostic, you know, they're all, you know, Esther George. They've all made very hawkish comments since then. You know, part of that is the fact that the Fed basically said, hey, look. We might have had we might have adopted this new these two new frameworks, but we're not going to be this sort of perpetually easy MMT financing, you know, central bank that you thought we were going to be, you know, we're just not at least not yet, we probably need another economic andor or market event um, to, to catalyze that that real shift left or more importantly, you could see someone uh, replace Powell in february of next year
1: i think that uh supply demand as well when you're talking about commodity cycles is just super super important right um and actually with that uh supply dynamic and bring more supply online i actually want to ask you about uh, moving to a crypto question here for you but when you look at an asset like bitcoin right where do you think that what, what's your macro sort of view on crypto in general do you think it has a place and do, do you view it as um almost like a an attempted new safe asset? Do you kind of subscribe to that whole like it's a new alternative to gold? Like, what's what's your just uh, kind of view on on crypto in general?
0: Well, I'm, I'm proud to see that the 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 narrative around Bitcoin is, in my opinion, appropriately changed to digital gold mm-hmm. because, as we all know, like the the, the, the environmental impact, the you know, there's, there's so many reasons why it's not a good currency, mm-hmm. um, and I think I'm glad that the, the the thought process around that has shifted because it me, it really, in my opinion, I think it opens up the, the likely, the, it opens up the asset class to other institutional investors. Yeah. You know, just in the same way that we saw with gold's institutional uh, interest really took off in the early 2000s. I think, we you know, we're kind of on the precipice of something like that uh, with bitcoins. But to answer your question, of course, I believe that it has a, has a role in any portfolio. So, mm-hmm. you know, in terms of how we think about the world from an asset allocation perspective, you know, we're, 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 what we do at 42Macro is we sort of help investors you know, kind of, you know, orient their longs and shorts, really through the lens of of what you're long, not what you're necessarily short, but what you're out of um, from the perspective of the five liquid asset classes, U.S. equities, global equities, commodities, fixed income, and currencies. And we do that through the lens of what we call our grid asset market back test. That's a, that's nomenclature, but it's really just designed to say, hey, what's the, the, the expected return and percent positive ratio for everything I can tell that I can shock the system with uh, from the perspective of, 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 of what we think about the economy, what we think about policy, what do we think about, um, you know, sort of the rest of the world, economic developments and things of that nature. And then what is the risk? What's the volatility? What's the covariance? So we're quantifying all this stuff and actually creating visualizations that help investors to say, hey, this is where I should be allocating capital at the margins. This is where I shouldn't be allocating capital at the margins. And right now, in terms of how we have the, um, the, uh, the, the commodities back test set up, and I believe that's on slide one eleven. Let me uh, jump you to there. Yeah, yep. So yeah, this is annualized expected return. So I mentioned that back testing process. So we have D for deflation. That means growth and inflation are trending lower. Uh, we don't think growth or inflation are slowing sharply. So we have zero sigma deltas plugged in there. We have policy uh, balance sheet tightening at the margin coming up. We have fiscal policy. We'll be tightening fiscal policy for you know extended period of time, just based mm. on the size of the hole that we blew in the budget deficit in the second in the first second first and second quarter of this year. And then lastly we have the rest of the world. So we factor in all that information on a 25 year look back to get you to those those scatter plots that we highlighted. Um, particularly I believe commodities again was on slide ninety eight. So Bitcoin in particular, again we just show the ETF um, as a proxy for the, the underlying indices mm. you know Bitcoin and Ethereum are actually quite low risk relative to where you know what what you know what you would expect from other commodities um, in the context of, of that analysis. And in my opinion, I think that's why you're now starting to see more funds flow back into crypto as a function of this transition to all those economic and, and political and policy developments that we highlighted in the back test.
1: And, you know, one of the, um, the components, just a growth thing you highlighted before was just uh, uh, demographics in general. And I do think it, you know, I, I don't really necessarily, people subscribe or people say there are a lot of differences, right, between like the millennial generation versus like Gen Z for, or... Gen X versus Boomer, etc. I think that most uh, generations tend to be pretty similar. That being said, I do think there is actually a a market preference for digital assets like crypto, Bitcoin, Ethereum, etc. From a younger generation, so I just see these huge tailwinds for the asset class in general. And I really do think um, I am very sympathetic to folks that are skeptical about uh, crypto in general. I I totally understand. I think it's actually more about volatility, really, than anything else. But I do think if you dig deep enough on most criticisms of this asset mm-hmm. class, what you end up finding is that there's a certain group of people they you just can't touch it, right? It's digital. And to that, to a certain demographic of folks, that means it's not as real as something that you can touch like gold. But mm-hmm. I think for a whole generation of especially, you know, people look at me and like, oh, you're a digital native. I don't really like, not really, not compared to, you know, Gen Z and what they're doing. I mean, for cool. them- it, for them, it's almost more real if it's online. Um, and It is more real if it's online. If it is. That is the world. That is the world.
0: Yeah, it's, it's, it's almost like you know, we're, we're getting to the place in the development of that generation where real and not real is a distinction without a difference. Like, <laughs> That's there's, a, there's, there's almost no difference between the two worlds. One is the physical where I eat and I sleep and I drink water. And the other ones where I do all the stuff that actually actualizes me from a human, human being perspective. And so I think you're, you're increasingly, for that generation and generations to come, things like digi- the concept of a digital asset, we're not even going to have the conversation after a while, Yeah, right? Like, for me, it's always been a digital asset. Like, I've never walked into, you know, like, I'm, if I b- b- buy a, uh, some shares of Apple, I'm not going to walk to, what was it, where's Apple, um, out of California, uh, you know, anyway, Cupertino. I'm yeah. not walking to Cupertino to grab the building. Yeah. No, it's, just, it's a concept of, yeah, I have a share of the company, you know, like, that's, so, to me, it's like, I think you're absolutely right in terms of that generational divide with respect to Bitcoin and Ethereum. But the reality is, is that um, part of it is the volatility of the asset class is quite high. And so the older you are, the less likely it is that you can actually have exposure to an asset that's that, you know, um, that volatile. You, you know, If you're living on some fixed income or something close to a fixed income, you certainly can't, can't afford to have an 80 vol asset or a 100 vol asset you know taking up a meaningful chunk of your portfolio so we understand those limitations as well
1: yeah I think uh you know the volatility of crypto as an asset class does a lot to explain just the psych it, it explains a lot of stuff to me right and especially having lived through it now for like four years or something like that um volatility breeds evangelism I don't know if that's the right word um and uh you know it really right. does because in order to stomach right you know 80% drops and to not sell you, the way the human brain works is right. You have this emotion and then you kind of use ration rationalization to justify why you've done what you've done. So everyone feel, I don't care. These people who are like, yeah, we're diamond hands. If what you're holding drops 50 to 80%, you feel an emotion because you're a freaking human and you're not a robot. And then all of the, you know, the, um, you know, the cerebral part of your brain kind of ascribes this logic to it. Right. But it, it really has this effect of hardening resolve over periods of time and I think if you look at gold and kind of the gold the community that's uh grown up around gold look at gold after it went off in, in like the 70s right it went from you know like I forget like whenever it went off uh it became legal for Americans to own again it went for like 35 dollars an ounce way up to you know I forget it did like a 20x or something like that 700 dollars an ounce and um I think that period of time if you look at a lot of folks in the gold community They were growing up when all that stuff happened. So that was a big uh, aha moment for me. I was like, why do these people have such ardent beliefs about this? And I was like, well, they went through a huge period of volatility and it just bred it uh, into them. Um, But I see you've got great quotes up here. Uh, Daniel Kahneman, um, big fan, big fan of him. Huge fan. And and
0: I was actually going to read this Danny Kahneman quote. Um, cause I think it's, it's, it speaks volumes to both the gold bug community and also the, the crypto bug communities are, or what do you call them, the hotlers as well. Um, so if you don't mind if I read <laughs> the crypto bug right,
1: community, that's good. I've never <laughs> heard that, but yeah, it's fair, yeah. fair approach folks. Yeah.
0: All right. So, uh, this is a, this is a quote from, uh, thinking fast and slow, uh, it's page 212. If you, one, by the way, if you have read that book, the first thing you need to do after hearing this podcast is go
1: read that book, Brock, yeah. um,
0: subjective confidence in a judgment is not a reasoned evaluation of the probability that this judgment is correct confidence is a feeling which reflects the coherence of the information and the cognitive ease of processing it it is wise to take admissions of uncertainty serious but declarations of high confidence mainly tell you that an individual has constructed a coherent story in his mind not necessarily that the story is true Mm. man that is crypto and and gold
1: bugs in a nutshell one unbelievable quote so one of the things that sticks out to me in that quote is the cognitive ease of processing it so People have people don't necessarily think about this. Uh, I mean, this is starting to come up in like the VC community. You know, the attention economy. So as it turns out, attention is a finite resource um, in people's brains. You do not have an infinite amount of attention. That's why actually people when they're going through stressful periods in their life tend to gain weight because uh, there's only so much like attention and um, like discipline right that you can have at one period of time. So if you're really focused on something, something has to give. That tends to be. Uh, eating standards. So, just a little fun fact yeah. there. Um, fun. But a- basically, everything has evolved from a cognitive standpoint to decreasing the amount of processing power that you have to do, right? That actually weirdly makes your brain more efficient um, in a lot of ways. So, man, yeah, that so basically, that really explains to me when people are just have this like evangelical belief you can't shake it because I don't need to think about it. I just know that this is true. I've accepted this truth. Boom. Man, what a. What an unbelievable quote that is <laughs> right there. Yeah, no, you're absolutely right.
0: And, and I think, you know, one of the things that we've done here is that we, I think I probably the, the best thing that we've done here is actually, you know, through the lens of that regime segmentation process um, that we highlighted on from a, what we call our bottom-up macro regime segmentation. But we also have our top-down dominant market regime views so who are constantly now casting what grid regime the asset markets are, are pricing in and more importantly, what grid they are likely to price in based on those bottom-up uh, economic views. And so, you know, what we're really doing here is just selling people cognitive ease. Mm-hmm. Like, you don't have to go out and, and, and bean count every time series to figure out what's happening economically. You don't have to go out and bean count and score the measure map, the volatility and price changes of, of all these different, you know, market-based indicators to figure out what grid regime the, the asset markets are in. You know, it's all about sort of... Reducing the sort of the, 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 the reducing the computing power, the processing power, and more importantly, the time with which investors need to spend processing all that information. This is why we think about the world of regime segmentation because it it reduces or restricts the range of probable outcomes to a much more manageable slate for investors.
1: One question uh, that I had for you, Darius, and then I know we got to start winding down. You've already been super generous with your time. If you go back to that regime that outlined the four quadrants. Um, now one, where would you place stagflation here? If you bottom right. bottom, right. Okay. Um, do you make any distinctions in between like a stagflationary versus inflationary environment or are those two, like, how, how do you think about those two possible outcomes?
0: Probably, you know, to determine just for an example, determine like one of those dots, mm-hmm. you're probably looking at over 10,000 data points to determine the placement of one of those dots. Yeah. yeah so it, there's a lot of there's a lot of summary, summarizing in terms of what we do here at 42 macro for investors but to answer your question yeah so when you're we're in that bottom right, that, that bottom right regime there when growth's decelerating and inflation's accelerating at the margins that is stagflation yeah you know and I think that I think investors also think about stagflation from the concept of high inflation and low growth you know like like that is also historically speaking stagflation but in terms of asset markets price that in what matters is the change at the margin. Are you going from high to less high or are you going from high to more high? Are you going from growth to slow growth to no growth or are you going from slow growth to some growth? That Those deltas, those changes at the margins are where 95% of asset market um, information is contained in terms of if you do a principal component analysis of, of the of various asset classes.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So I guess just to wrap it up, I mean, we've covered a lot of the ground uh, and thanks for being so uh, generous with your time. Any parting okay. thoughts for folks listening to like, let's say you're, um, you know, from the perspective of, of someone who's kind of, <laughs> maybe in the older generation, managing for retirement, like these are, could be interesting times, could be somewhat concerning times, right? So just any parting thoughts on, on everything that we sort of covered so far?
0: Yeah, so if, if a couple of uh, parting thoughts. So th- these are interesting times and they are concerning times, but they don't necessarily have to be concerning to the place where you need to run and raise a bunch of cash, hmm. right? Like we already seen like rec- record cash balances amongst investors, that's on slide 90 here. Let me take you there. You know, so we're right here, We're you know, we're, all-time highs in the stock market, just an unrelenting bull market. And yet, throughout that entire process, investors, you know, through the lens of money market fund assets, have been, you know, kind of sitting on their hands. You know, there hasn't been as much participation in, in the asset markets that um, you would have expected because of that. Because the times are so interesting. we got a pandemic going on. we got China doing whatever the heck it wants to do. we got Russia undermining elections. we got people storming the capital. People marching all across the country. It's been very difficult for investors to sort of handicap all this risk. And so one of the things that we do, again, here at 42 Macro is, is really just help them c- c- quantify that risk. You know, the chart on the right shows these these, two, these are two of the most important charts in the deck from the perspective of managing drawdown risk. Right. Um, one is the relationship between the VIX, that's the volatility volatility index and the VIX, the S&P 500 VIX index. When that ratio breaks to bearish, it's a get the heck out of dodge market in so much that when our cross asset correction risk indicator breaks down into the low 20s, high teens, that's also a get out of dodge signal. So right now, neither of those uh, signals are suggested that investors need to be as bearish as that cash chart highlighted. Um, So that means you can continue to take selective risks in the the equity and credit markets. Um, You know, we're quite we've been quite bullish um, you know, really throughout you know, since going all the way back to the, you know, the spring of last year. And there's really no reason to have gotten off of that shift as a function of both of what's happened in the economy, going back uh, to that, that colorful table on slide five, but also how policy dynamics are evolving to support, uh, for the asset price appreciation from here. So, um, you know, I guess that my parting thought would be, you know, take everything you read with a grain of salt. Things don't happen in a straight line. If we're going to, if I mentioned that comment on, inflation, the, the, the stationary mean of inflation being transposed higher, it's not, the, the markets aren't going to realize that it's been transposed higher all in a straight line. You know, there's going to be a time period where we disinflate for 12 to, you know, 15 months from here, from from the, the most recent data points. And at some point in the, towards the tail end of that process, that's when the markets will start to say, hey, no, wait, this dollar is really moving to the downside. We got to go reallocate back towards commodities and things of that nature. So uh, understand cycles is probably the most important thing I can, I can, I can uh, leave your investors with.
1: Absolutely. And Darius, if folks want to find out more about you or 42 Macro or follow the work that you do, what's the best way to do that?
0: Yeah. So uh, obviously our website, 42macro.com, but I'm also on Twitter uh, at 42macro, D-D-A-L-E. And then uh, we have our 42 Macro handle as well.
1: Awesome. All right, man. Thanks so much. This has been super enlightening and thanks so much for making the time. Hope to do it again soon.
0: Appreciate you, brother. Thank you so much.
1: You too, man. Take care.